Huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. Hey, it's Julie. Welcome to Top of Mind. We're doing something a little unusual this week. One of the guests we featured in last week's episode about grief offered so much clear, practical advice. It was like getting our own counseling session. <laughs> and we wanted to let you hear that whole thing. So here is my conversation with Lisa Athen. She's a grief specialist and founder of the Grief Speaks Facebook community. How would you describe the American approach to grief and supporting people in grief? So years back, we were much more natural and death was part of life. Even my mom, who would be about 90 if she was alive, said, you know, people, family members, when they were ill, they died in the house often. People saw it. Children were present. They knew that people lived and then they died. Years back, we lost many children as well. And that was almost seen as always one of the hardest losses or the hardest loss and out of the way nature should be. But even that people saw. So we were much more up close and personal with death and grief. That's not to say that everyone in their family processed the grief part, but they saw death. And now we've come to where grandparents, elderly are in nursing homes, assisted living, people move far away from families. So people are a lot more removed from people that are very ill who die. And now with COVID on top of that, it's really made it very difficult to have that close, safe connections with people that knew the person, that know us when we're grieving. So we've kind of gone to a place where death is all around us more than ever. We hear about it, but we don't always talk about the grief. And personally, I think we don't know how to talk to people when they've had loss and not just death loss, any kind of loss. And I, that's something I'm very passionate about. I want people to know how to support each other so that everyone doesn't have to go to a grief specialist to get support. Huh. What does a grief specialist do that's so magical? Really, I think the magic in a good therapist, a good grief specialist is presence, is allowing, validating the person to be exactly where they are to allow them to be with someone that doesn't have an agenda. I don't need the person not to be crying. I'm not handing tissues to people. I always say, if you want to make someone stop crying, hand them a tissue, count three seconds. And almost always when we give someone a tissue, they stop crying. And I want people to be able to cry. I feel like we're not allowed to cry as much. So I think it's about presence giving people permission and validating. I work with a lot of grieving parents and I will say to them, it's only been three years. And they'll cry sometimes and say, no one says only three years. People act as if it's been six months or a year, we should be over it, in quotes. What you just described there certainly wouldn't require, you know, a master's degree or anything to, to, to be present why, why do we find that so difficult to do for one another? I think part of it is we are so with technology at our hands, literally and figuratively, we're constantly bombarded with information. 
we are distracted. I just had one of my clients call to say their significant other said that whenever they speak, he feels like she's distracted and she's running all over the place. And she said to me, but I am because I have so many things I need to do. So in order for us to really get quiet and present with somebody who's in emotional pain requires us to be practicing some self-care, to be honest and say to a friend, I really want to hear this. I really want to be there for you right now. I have to do this thing, but I promise if it's okay, if tonight at six, I will call you or I'll come over and I will you'll have my undivided attention. So if you were to summarize the best way to support someone who's grieving, what would you say? I would say first, do some of your own work on your own grief. Allow yourself to feel because if we don't know how to be there for ourselves and allow ourselves permission to grieve all the losses in life, any of the losses we go through, how can we truly show up to someone else and be there in a way that's present, in a way that validates them and gives them permission? It doesn't mean we can't be there for people. If we still have lots of work to do in ourselves, we all do. But it requires taking a breath, not just running in from work, cooking dinner, and then you're about to call that friend who just lost a child or a spouse or just found out they got diagnosed with cancer. I'm not going to call them in the middle of rushing. I'm going to pause. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to center myself. I like to put my hand on my heart for 10 seconds. They say that releases oxytocin that calms us. And then I'm going to call and be there. So I think it requires us to kind of get a little centered. As a friend of mine likes to say, let them catch your calm. That if we're in a calm space, that's half of it, showing up with presence and then listening and really allowing the person to be where they are. And that could change moment to moment. Um, why is that helpful to someone who's grieving? If all I'm doing is listening to them talk, if I'm, I'm not actually offering anything in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, making them feel better. So that's a great question, Julie, because I think we're under the impression that, yes, showing up with food, always, all cultures, almost every family I know, that's universal. We can show up as... Kate Braystrip said, who lost her husband suddenly and a neighbor had just made brownies. And Kate said, they obviously couldn't have been for us because we just found out he died. But the woman came, the neighbor came to her door, had just found out her husband died suddenly and had these hot brownies. And the woman had tears streaming down her face. And Kate said, that was the most meaningful expression of grief that anyone did for me support. So it's important because we think that in our platitudes, oh, he's in a better place. You know what? At least he's not suffering anymore. God wanted an angel. You can only, you know, you're given what you can handle. We say all sorts of things. 
in an attempt to make the person feel better, but that doesn't make them feel better. Saying to somebody something that we learned, a cliche, actually can be really hurtful for people. Many grievers, and I speak with grievers for many, many years about all kinds of losses, and most of them say it's those people that show up, either on the phone, in a text, even in a text, don't ask a question. I am thinking of you. Do not make the griever have to respond. No need to respond, just wanted to say I'm thinking of you. Showing up to somebody in grief and just listening and just saying, I'm just here. We don't need to do it anyway. I'm not gonna offer you words that are meaningless. Sometimes it's nice to say, I don't know what to say. And the person often will say, of course you don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say to me either. But thank you for being here. In the old days, people didn't have a lot of pots and pans and they say, somebody would make a casserole for a neighbor and they would go and drop it off. And a week later, that neighbor would return and knock on the door and say, I'm sorry, I need my pan back. And the person would say, oh, could you sit and have a cup of tea with me? Everyone's kind of gone back to their life. And in that, just sitting with someone over a cup of tea, that can be a great gift for the person. So let's break down some of these, um, this great advice you've got, these, these steps that seem so simple but are fundamentally just really counterintuitive to a lot of us. So the first thing I heard you say was to center yourself and not be in a hurry when you're engaging with someone who's grieving. Yeah. And, and then the second thing is to not say too much. <laughs> Avoid the urge to try to offer something that would feel comforting, but instead just to be there and to listen. And why, why is that helpful to a grieving person? because so many people in their life have already knocked on their door and called them and offered them lots of advice, suggestions. They'll say, you know, you should keep busy. You should go do this, you should do that. And they get so inundated with the people that have lots of words. And often we offer lots of words for our own anxiety because we don't know what to say. And we feel uncomfortable being with someone in a lot of pain, again, especially if we don't allow ourselves to be with our own pain. So instead, if we just show up and I have no agenda and we could just sit quietly and we don't even have to talk, that could be a great gift. There's a great book. It's, a, it's like a children's book, but it's really for adults. It's called Tear Soup by Pat Schweibert and she's a grief specialist. And it tells of a grandma who had a big loss and it never says what it is. And it talks about making soup and the soup is memories and experiences. And in it, different friends come over. Mrs. Cries a lot and that's not helpful. But eventually the friend Mitch comes and Mitch just sits with Graham and doesn't need her to talk or not talk, doesn't need her to be any other place where she's at. So I think that validating when someone says, I'm really scared, people say, I feel like it's all my fault, especially a bereaved parent. Parents feel like our job is to keep our children safe and we can't always do that. And 
people will say, I feel like it's my fault. And so often well-meaning people will say, that's ridiculous. Don't think that. Don't. We don't allow the people to express where they're, what they're feeling. So I think we're better off going into a situation with less words and more presence and allowing the person to just say what they want. And then we can say, wow, that must feel so difficult to feel that. Yeah, it does. Hmm. I remember a man his told me that his son died at college and his other daughter was at college. And he said, I had to tell her on the phone because it was so far away. By the time she came to our home, she probably would have heard from somebody. And I, and he said, I called my daughter. He said, I'm not an emotional guy. I never was, but I called our daughter and I said, I have to tell you something really sad. Your brother died. And he said, my daughter cried and sobbed and wailed for an hour on the phone. And I said, what did you do? He said, nothing. I just stayed on the phone. I mean, she heard me sometimes cry. I didn't really say maybe more than one or two words. And after about an hour, he said she took a really deep inhale and exhale and said, Dad, I have never felt as close to you as I have in this moment. Thank you for just being there with me. And he said, I will never forget. I said almost nothing, but I held that space for her and I was with her. And that's what I find time and time again, grievers remember, those people. Sometimes someone experiences a loss that is similar to a loss you might have experienced yourself. Someone loses their father. I lost my father. Is it ever helpful to say, here's, here's what I experienced in this loss? As a, I mean, it feels tempting to sort of offer, you know, in solidarity, you're hurting I hurt too. This was normal. It's okay. What do you think about that? So I feel very strongly that there's no right or wrong answer on that. It's interesting. A lot of the people on Grief Speaks on the Facebook page will write me because I don't let people post on the page. It's too hard to monitor what's written. So they'll send me a letter about a loss of their child or a parent or their soulmate. And then they'll say, would you share this either anonymously or with my name? And I share it. And I often read, I can't always read all the comments because it's very busy, the page, but I do scan. And I read a lot of the things that the griever comments, thank you so much, this really meant a lot. And half of the time, people are saying, can't imagine or what a, I could feel the love that, and the loss and the tremendous devastation. And sometimes they'll say, and I remember when I lost my dad and I felt a lot of the things that you felt. So sometimes I think it is, that's why support groups are so very important. And a lot have been on the internet lately, which is still good, but nothing like being in person with other like compassionate friends that's all over the world for parents who've lost a child. So I think 
sometimes though, at a funeral line, sometimes someone just found that someone died or they're at a funeral or they're calling a friend and we quickly go into, oh, when my mom died? And that's not helpful because then we're almost leaving the griever to then talk about our own loss. What I do say to people is that may, when we're with someone who had a similar loss, it's gonna touch on our grief, go home journal, call a safe friend. If the person's in a place where they're not in raw grief and it's been some time, you could say, you know, it's reminding me, I don't know if you want me to share about something about my loss, but as a counselor, rarely would I do that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying never. I don't like a lot of black or white never say. It's just like the things not to say. It's not helpful to say they're in a better place, but sometimes people will say, someone said that to me and that helped. Usually that line is best coming from the griever, though. Yeah. It's really about um, kind of mirroring, <laughs> matching yes. what what they are, are putting out there, what what concerns, what, you know, and if they're, if they're finding comfort in talking about how I know this person's in a better place, then there's an opening there to mirror some of that if you also feel the same way. Absolutely. And I think what happens is if we're too quick to offer our beliefs and thoughts, if we say to someone, you must be heartbroken, your dad died, there's a lot of less than loved ones that die. Mm -hmm. And now if I say that to a child or an adult and they don't feel like that, now they might have some shame or now they're not going to open up. And I'll say something like, what's the hardest part for you now? You know, because the relationship, when we, somebody dies or leaves us, the relationship matters. Were we very dependent on them? We have a lot of couples where, you know, one didn't do anything without the other one. And now this, their spouse died and they feel lost. And then there's other people that were much more independent in their marriage and they lose a spouse and they're grieving and heartbroken, but they can still function in lots of ways that this other person can't. Sometimes the relationship was toxic, abusive. And there was yeah. a lot of trauma and that grief. Sometimes people will say, I bet you're relieved. There's ex-spouses that die. And so many people have written to me and said, that, which Kenneth Doka has called disenfranchised loss. When we're not almost allowed to have that grief because people think, well, you divorce them or they're old. When people get very old, I remember my grandma was 91 and she lost another friend and a sibling. And somebody said to her, well, that's what happens when you get old. Our children are grieving with the school shootings, with all the things going on with COVID. And often we want to say, yeah, but they don't, it doesn't really affect them. Children are resilient. They're not resilient in a vacuum. They need what you just mentioned, Julie, that, that mirroring, which is like attuning. When we can attune with the griever, when we can meet them where they are and create that presence, I think that's so much a part of their healing. That's not all, but that's the beginning. They can feel their feelings. They can hear their thoughts. I'm speaking with Lisa Athen, who is a grief specialist, a grief counselor, founder of Grief Speaks, which is 
uh, a Facebook page and a resource website. Something I learned, actually, from your resources is that it's often not helpful to ask, how can I help? (laughs) Which is, you know, I'm definitely wired to kind of come in and fix things. And so, um, you know, what I really want to be able to do when someone is suffering is, how can I help? Can I come and clean your house? Can I come and, you know, whatever. But of course, I don't want to just bulldoze my way in. Um, And so I feel like I need to ask, right? But according to your resources, that's not a helpful question when someone is grieving. Why? So that's a great question. How can I help? We, we want to help. And I think helping is important. If I was live in front of you right now, I'd have, I still have them anyway, a box of dominoes that I learned from a grief specialist up in Maine. And she said, we go through life with a box of dominoes, all the things that are important to us. And we don't often think much about those dominoes until something happens and a big loss. And I spill the dominoes out and they fall all over the place. And invariably, when I speak in big, in big organizations with a big audience, someone will get out of their seat and I'll say, what are you doing? And they say, I want to pick up your pieces. And I say, oh, I wish you could pick up my pieces, but this is my loss. And you can't pick up my pieces for me because I have to figure out, does that friend go back in my domino box? Can I go back to work? But there are things you can do to help because we are wired, we want to help. So it's not that we can't help. It's that so often people will text a friend or call someone and say, hey, I want to help, what can I do? So number one, if someone's just had a loss, they often don't even know how they're going to do the next hour. They don't know much, they don't even know what they need. So I'll say to a griever sometimes, you know, it's great if you can appoint one of your close people in your life to be the person that when people ask, how can I help? They will have a list, do the laundry, walk the dog, take their child who's on the spectrum to a movie so mom can just sit and wail and cry her eyes out, you know, and they'll have things to do. But too often we say to people, call me if you need me. I always ask audiences, raise your hand if you've called someone when you needed them and maybe one person out of 500. Mm -hmm. And they said, it's better if you just show up and say, I brought groceries. Hey, I'm going to walk your dog. And the person could say, and I'm not saying everybody should show up at the house because that's also hard. You know, sometimes that's overwhelming, but I think it's important that we want to help. And this is also important, Julie. So many people feel that they have to send the the sympathy card out the first week. They have to show up. They have to send the food immediately. So many people do that. What the griever really needs is two weeks later, a month later, six months later. And sometimes people will say to me, I feel I shouldn't send the card. It's too late. And I'll say, no, it's not too late. As a matter of fact, it's so, grievers will say, I couldn't even really read them in the beginning. It meant so much that somebody was still thinking of me. So there are a lot of ways to help, but the fixers in our society, and there's a lot of them, like you mentioned, Julie, the people, maybe you have some of that you want to show up and fix, and that's great. But in this way of fixing, it's more about we're not fixing. We want to see how we can be of help. And they might not know how they can be they may not know how we can help them at the moment. Mm. But that doesn't mean we can't offer. 
but not asking them, call, not saying, call me if you need me. Yeah. Um, how long does a person who has experienced a loss need someone to come and just sit and listen? Is that really a first couple of weeks after the loss thing? So that's such a great question. And I think that's so individual. It, people grieve in different ways. They're saying now that there's intuitive grievers. And those are people that after a loss, talk about the loss, cry about it, express their anger, their fear. They might join a support group. They're very open about in their mourning. As Alan Wall felt very clear about saying, you know, we have a loss, we grieve, and that's all the internal, those feelings. But mourning is, people have called it grief gone public. It's not always public, but it's what we do with the grief. So the intuitive grievers want to talk about it, be with other people. Then there's instrumental grievers, and they think about the loss a lot, and they might take their grief and put it into their work, get started with a cause. Sue Klebold, whose son was one of the shooters at Columbine who died, wrote a book, um, A Mother's Reckoning, and she took all that pain of having the son, her son be the one who was responsible for all this loss and she is now working very hard in the field of suicide prevention so and and murder suicide and things like that so the people that are in instrumental grievers take their pain so some people need somebody in the beginning the first few days and weeks to really be with them support them some people need somebody i think we need people in our lives whether it's a friend a counselor, a mentor, somebody, when you go back to work and an anniversary comes up. I work with a lot of people who've lost children and now it's a child's birthday coming up next week and they're at work and they're very aware. So they need a manager, a boss, a colleague who, not all of those, but even one person who knows how to just come and sit and say, I know next week's going to be tough. How can I help in terms of your workload? Is there anything that I can do for you? So I think some people, we grieve. Many people will say we grieve forever. I lost my mom 29 years ago. I think about her a lot. I lost my dad about seven years ago. I don't think one day we wake up and say I'm over them. I do think though everyone has different needs and also some of us have really great support systems in our life. So maybe that person can go to a grief support group or maybe a grief specialist for a while and not everyone needs to go to therapy. I think Harvard did a study with bereaved children and said 80% of kids are doing okay. Two years later, okay meaning they're going to always miss their parent and they're grieving and life's never going to be exactly the way it was but basically they're doing okay 20 percent of the kids need additional support i get a lot of people who come who will say to me i just want to talk to somebody because i feel like in my family everyone's telling me to sort of get over it and not to think about it or they get stuck with some of those feelings of guilt or anger, and they need a place to talk about those things and unpack those things in a safe space. 
I also work with a lot of families and help them understand that everyone in a family had a different relationship with the person who died and they all have different inner supports. If a person has anxiety or depression before the loss, it's so important to take care of mental health. If somebody's in recovery from addiction, that's so important to take care of that while the person is grieving, especially. What's the difference between normal, healthy grieving and unhealthy grieving? There's a term now used, well, it's not a term, a diagnosis, prolonged grief disorder or complicated grief. And when I read about that, it's interesting because, again, if you take a person who's in a family or in a society where grief, where a person is almost shunned for expressing feelings eight months later, two years later, they will almost feel like there's something wrong with them because they're still grieving, they're still mourning, and no one around them is, so there's something wrong with them. Mm. I have parents who've lost a child three years ago, six years ago, and sometimes they'll say, I have two friends who also lost a child, but they're going back to work, and they're, you know, they're functioning in a way. I'm not saying they're happy all the time, but I feel like I'm not functioning in that way. I can't get off the couch. Often if they're, they have a spouse or they're living with someone else who that relationship is very fractured, that's going to impede their grieving process as well. Because if they come home every night from work and they're not allowed to cry and express or talk about it, it's going to, they're going to push it down and it's going to build and build. So we have a lot of people that almost numb themselves, become workaholics, who avoid emotions at all costs, but that costs a lot because when we're not allowing ourselves to feel those feelings, we're also cutting off the good feelings too. So, but is there a point at which those feelings, like they're, I mean, they're supposed to subside at some point. Is that right? Yes. Like it, it's, I mean, Absolutely. It, okay. So, so, you know, so if you have a loved one who's experienced a loss and, you know, maybe six months, a year on, they're still crying a lot every time they mention the person or whenever, you know, you're doing this sort of sitting with them and it's sound, and it's still a lot of the same things you were hearing in the first weeks and months. At what point do you become concerned about helping someone you love experience grief in, in a healthy way? Right. And that's a great question. I think it's always helpful to encourage that person. And often that griever will even acknowledge, I can't get off the couch or I'm stuck. I can't enjoy anything. And you're right. Even I had a mom who lost a three-year-old who said, I have other children. I don't want my life to feel like it's over now because of this devastating loss. I want to go on living and I'll miss him always. And she said, I want to help other moms be able to do that too. So what do you say? You encourage them to join a support group. You encourage them to get with a therapist, to seek out somebody who specializes in grief so that they can work together through that. There's lots of, I think it's, 
Catherine Shea out of Columbia University has does a lot of work in complicated grief. And she's even had people like record on a recorder the whole loss and everything about it and listen to it throughout the day, daily. I'm not saying I'm telling people to do this. This is what she has, some of her grievers, till they actually can hear the story and not be so um, triggered by the story, not so reactive. Uh, Sometimes people need trauma therapy, Mm -hmm. EMDR, is a wonderful, wonderful therapy for people, especially if the loss was traumatic. Because again, if it's traumatic grief, traumatic loss, first we have to deal with the trauma part and then the grief. Mm. So sometimes people are stuck in, it appears to be, they haven't progressed. They're not getting any better from what we can see. And sometimes it's because of the trauma piece and we need to deal with that first. Because when it's sudden and shocking, a violent death, that the person's not grieving immediately. They're in shock. They can't process it. Everything that they knew life to be is not what they thought it was. And it takes time. And a lot of those people will say to me, I'm finally really grieving now. And it's been six months or a year. Now that I've kind of, especially if they've gone for some trauma therapy time has gone by they've done things to help themselves feel safe or with a professional and now they get get to the grief part the missing the yearning that they couldn't even experience early on because they were so much in the trauma and shock Mm. so that might be part of what's going on when someone has experienced a sudden or shocking or upsetting a, a traumatic loss and it seems like initially they 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 kind of just want to keep talking over the traumatic details. Um, and other people around them might be uncomfortable with that and feel like this isn't helping. <laughs> Why do you want to keep talking about those first 24 hours when he was in the ER or, you know, <laughs> like, why? Um, but that's part of um, potentially their, their reaction to trying to process that trauma. Right. And, and that's a really good point, Julie, because often, like, even if you go to a funeral and somebody died, of cancer and it was slow and that's really grueling and difficult too to see someone die slowly but that was an anticipated loss at some point we kind of knew this is coming my mom died of lung cancer and toward the end we knew it was coming although we know in our head we don't know in our heart and when that happens it's you'll go to a funeral and people often will share with everybody who comes up to them the last few hours or and then this happened and I remember years ago thinking, it's too bad they can't write it down so they don't have to keep telling everybody. It must be mm. exhausting. But then I learned, no, that's part of the healing. We're storytellers. And in telling the story, it's healing. However, as you mentioned, if it's a traumatic loss and there's a lot of trauma around the death, it can be re-traumatizing or somebody can get secondary trauma from hearing it. So we have to be careful about that too. So if a loved one's had a traumatic loss and you notice that they want to talk to lots of people about or a few people about all the traumatic details, that's another time I would say, you know, that would probably be helpful to talk to someone who specializes in that because they're going to be able to help you with that. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's a lot for other people to hear that and they don't know what to say. 
Would any of your advice be different if, if it were a child that had experienced a loss? When we talk about supporting a child or a teenager, do they need different kinds of support in their grief? Yeah, I think children, they say grieve in spurts. Like they're not going to just talk about their anger, their sadness all at once. It's going to be in little pieces. Kids test us and teenagers especially will give us a little information. And I'm always saying to parents, don't ask so many questions. We want to jump in sometimes. They'll say, I'm feeling a little sad. We're like, oh my gosh, they're finally talking about the loss and we want to ask a million questions and now they shut down. We want to follow a child's lead, a teen's lead. Teen, children quickly know who they can talk to about the loss and who they can't. They'll start to talk about it and they can see our body language. They see the way we respond, the way we don't respond, the way we change the subject. So it's really nice to meet kids. Sometimes with children and teens, we'll be doing, a, doing an activity together. And that's when they'll ask. Often in the car, when there's no eye contact, that's when a lot of questions are asked. Or playing a game or shooting hoops together and just sitting together, playing or cooking together. And they might ask. If a child doesn't ask, it's okay to say, you know, I'm wondering, how you're doing about the grandma died. I know, and you could say as a parent even, I know I'm sad, I miss her. I was wondering, are you missing her? How are you doing with that? What's the hardest part? Mm -hmm. Children tend to want to protect their parents, even grown children. So I have a woman who's 30 and she said, my mom's so sad about my brother, of course, that when I'm sad, I don't want to go to her because that could be the one moment she's not sad. And I often say, you know, your mom still wants to be a mom to you. And it's okay, but you can ask her, is now an okay time? I can talk to you about that. With teens, teens need a lot of privacy. Not too much privacy, but they need privacy. Teens are struggling with, I should be able to handle this. And I often say to teens, you know, everyone, even grown adults need support, even if it's from friends. I talk to teens a lot how to talk to their friends about the loss, and I'll have them, like adults, practice three responses. So if a friend said, hey, I heard your dad died and they're at school, you can practice saying, yeah, I don't want to talk about it now, or giving a little information, or you know, saying something and changing the subject. And I talk to them about if it comes up for you when you're at practice or at school, where can you go? A lot of kids will say, I just go to the bathroom, throw water on my face, take a deep breath, and I go back to math class. Okay. Some go to a counselor. And sometimes at the school counselor's office, they don't even want to talk about it. They just need a space to regroup. So with teens and children, I would follow their lead. But if they're not talking about it at all, I would share a little bit how the adult's doing and ask them a little bit. And then come back to it. We always say a death isn't like a one big tell-all. It's going to be something we process. And as they get older, a child who's lost a parent, as they enter middle school or high school or college or get their driving license, any monumental thing, their first date, it's going to bring up that loss again. So remembering that as well. 
and not just assuming kids are resilient, they get over it. It's like, no, a lot of times parents don't want to bring up these hard things like the school shootings and everything, but kids are aware of it and they get scared. And it's really important to teach our children and teens what are ways that ground you. My daughter, one of my kids just had something happen that was mildly, I thought a little traumatic at work. And I said to her, you know, are you okay? She said, oh, it's fine. And I said, when you get home, maybe, I know she likes tea, maybe make some of your herbal tea, listen to music. You could stay on the phone with me, you know, pet the cat. I listed some things that I know for her are things that can calm her. So sometimes it's important to remind people that. What are things that make you feel safe? Because we can feel very anxious after a loss. And it's important that we're taking care of that part of ourselves that's scared. That's all such great advice. Let's talk a little more about um, what to do if you're the one going through grief. So if we talk now about how to do right by ourselves. (laughs) I love that. In that situation. I love that. So one thing we can do is we can be honest. So when we have a loss come up, and again, I, death losses are, we're very aware of those losses, but there's a million other losses that happen throughout the day. Some are big, some are not so big to us, I'm talking about. So even if it's a, maybe to you feels like a big loss, what can you do? You can acknowledge it. Maybe you're at work. I remember a couple of times I was at work, something came up and I thought, oh, if I was home right now, I would just let myself cry or call a friend, but I can't. I have to finish what I'm doing at work. So I first thing I do is acknowledge that I have grief. I have some pain, emotional pain. And I'll say to myself, I promise later when I get home, I am going to take care of, I'm not going to desert myself. I'm not going to abandon myself because we do that a lot. That's a mistake we make. We push it down. We talk ourselves out of our feelings. We say it's not really a big deal, but it is a big deal. And so if it's a death loss too, like if it comes up, so acknowledge the loss, the feelings, try to identify what feelings you're having. There's a great book out that just came out last year, Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett out of Yale. And even in the the cover of the book, The Inside Sleeve, he has about a hundred feeling words. And he's saying we should all be able to grab onto 40 different feeling words when we need to. So try to identify what is it that you're feeling. Feeling, are you yearning for the person? Feeling sad, are you feeling guilty or regret? Are you feeling lonely, insecure? And acknowledge those. And then when you are home, when you are in a safe space, create some space so you can either journal, call a friend, sit with it. So often we're in our society, we're so quick to do something instead of being with it, that people will tell me I'm not sleeping at night. And I'll say, is it because you're running from the grief all day and then you lie down and you're done with TikTok and Instagram, and then you lie there and they're like, yeah, then it all comes up. So if we could learn to be with our grief and our feelings throughout the day from time to time, instead of just waiting for lying in bed and learning to be present to whatever comes up, oh, there's some anger. Oh, there's that feeling about that it's my fault. Let me just hold that 
and all those feelings are in our body. I'll ask people, where do you feel it in your body? What does it feel like? What does it need right now? And to sit with it. How am I ever going to move past or move through to a place where I'm not feeling those feelings so intensely if I'm focusing on sitting with them? That's a great, great question. There's a book called Grieving Mindfully. And in it, they say people are so afraid to kind of give permission to the grief to be with the feelings as if the feelings will overtake you. On the contrary, when we notice when we breathe, like breathing is such a great thing I do with all my clients and teach them to take a deep breath, slow, slower exhale, you're breathing, you're in this moment. Well, our feelings are kind of like the breath. They come in, they leave. And if we pay attention to them, they're not always that intense, acute pain, always. People will say, if I start crying, I'm never going to stop crying. And I say, do you know anyone that's never stopped crying? Like, we really are afraid. Or if I let the anger out, it'll never stop. So if we learn to be with it and just notice it, we'll also notice it shifting. And over time, the feelings will come up. They may be as intense or a little less intense, but less frequent. And as I said, special days, holidays, something reminds them. It comes up and then they learn hand on their heart or breathe. It's okay. I can get through this. If I need to call someone, if I need to write in a journal, volunteering, I'm always saying exercise, nutrition, getting enough sleep, all those things help and they all affect our mental health. And how long should I expect to, to have to be periodically doing that? Like how long, how long will I continue to experience moments of intense grief emotion? Usually the moments of intensity start to dissipate and become fewer and farther between, depending on your loss. If it's a loss of a child, it may take a long time. I don't think people who lose a child ever one day wake up and say, I don't have that pain in my heart. A lot of people say everything from this point on is bittersweet. It's exciting and wonderful this happened and I'm wishing my child was there. So again, I think it's individual. I don't think there's a prescription of time of we grieve for a year, then it starts to go away. And then on the third year, it's gone. As a matter of fact, Harold Ivan Smith, who's done a lot of speaking on grief and an author, I've heard him many times, has a permission to mourn certificate that I share on my Grief Speaks Facebook page. <laughs> and it's like, there's no time limit to this. You're allowed to grieve and mourn in whatever way you feel is helpful. And people around you, this guarantees you're going to get a little support from people around you and things like that. So I think we grieve forever. We love people. And somebody said once that grief is just all that love with nowhere to go. Like we miss them and we think of them, and then we mourn, and we take that grief, and we invest it in other relationships, or in work, or we, one dad said, I never told my daughter how much I appreciated her. She had died in a car accident at 20, and he said, you know what I'm going to do, and this was like day two after she died. I said, what? He said, I'm going to let everyone I know 
know how much I appreciate them and care about them. And every time I do that, I'm doing that for my daughter. And that's like meaning making too. So that's also important. And that also helps in our grieving. What are we doing? Are we, sometimes people join a support group to help other people. Or sometimes they volunteer and they show up for people that are shut in or somebody who's lonely. And now that they've learned what helped, they can help others. And that's a great thing with the grievers. I'll often ask them a question on the Facebook page. You know, what was the best thing someone did for you? Somebody said, friends came, walked into my backyard and, and planted a butterfly bush. I didn't even ask them to. And now every year when the butterflies come, it reminds me of them and my loved one. So sometimes, or someone will get involved in volunteering and say, I want to do Meals on Wheels because I know what it means to just be with somebody when they're lonely and just sit with them. And they'll say, that's my giving back. So there's lots of ways that we can take our grief and turn it into ways of connecting with other people and helping ourselves. And then when it comes up again in that moment, we know how to pick those pieces up. We know what we need. And we know it hurts like anything, but we also know we're going to get through it and that we can help other people through their pain as well by being there. Lisa Ethan is a grief recovery specialist. She's founder of the Grief Speaks Facebook community. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. It's really wonderful to be with you. I hope you enjoyed that extended cut of our conversation. Next week, we are back with an all-new episode of Top of Mind about what it means to be an activist. Somebody who stood in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square or got tear gassed or got arrested, and those weren't things that I had ever done. If we expand our idea of what activism looks like and deepen our understanding of how change actually happens, would more of us get involved in trying to make the world a better place? That is next week on an all-new episode of Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.